I'm Christina Jurekides, and we're committed to making the seemingly impossible possible. We stand at the intersection of the values of humanity with the value of technology. Inspire for Impact, the podcast, is a place where we have conversations with inspirational entrepreneurs, community leaders, and representatives of organisations who are boldly creating a future by design. The good, the bad, the warts, and the inspiration. We're leading the way to be the change we want to see in the world. Conversations that bring to light the magic that is happening on a daily basis all over the globe. And welcome to another episode of Inspired for Impact, where we speak to the most inspirational people in Australia and around the globe. And today we are going to Australia's capital, to Canberra, to have a conversation with Zoe Ralph. Zoe, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Christina, it's a delight to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Zoe, you are an author of four leadership books. And the reason for this particular podcast, we've interviewed you before and had a, had a most amazing conversation. So I encourage all our listeners to go back and, and listen to the previous podcast that we've made with you. The reason that we're doing this follow-up podcast as well is because you've ventured into the world of science fiction. So what I would like to ask you by way of introducing yourself, because everybody can read your bio and they can visit you on LinkedIn, but what might they be saying about you in 20 to 30 years time on LinkedIn or whatever its equivalent is going to be? What do you want to be up there? All right. So in 20 years, I'll be 72. And I believe you'll get a snapshot of me walking on the beach in Newcastle with something in my hand that is very unusual, which would be a paper-based communication. <laughs> and it's a special communication because it's an invitation to act as ambassador to the moon colony. <laughs> That's what you'll be seeing. Excellent. And that is the perfect segue into your book, The Olympus Project. So before we actually share some of the plot, that's it. It's you know, <laughs> wonderful. Um, and we'll put the links for everybody to go and purchase uh, in, in, the, in the notes for the show. But Zoe, Olympus Project, I'm really uh, loving the name. But what, what was the motivation for venturing into the world of science fiction? Oh, there's probably a couple of threads that got woven together over a number of years. And probably the first the first thread came about in 2009, I think it was, where I went to a conference and I saw a futurist present. His name was Craig Rispin, and he blew my mind about all the things that were coming in the future. And I since worked with Craig a little bit. I had him come to speak to my leadership groups about the uh, futurist thinking. And one of the things he talked about is that all leaders should read science fiction. And I was like, what? How, how, why that recommendation? He goes, well, science fiction writers are futurists. They think deeply about the trends that they're seeing and then bring it into imagination to help us explore what the future could be. So that was probably the initial first thread. And then fast forward probably to 2020, when I did a writing course with Stephen Kotler called Flow for Writers. And that program reignited my passion for language and for writing itself. And it also had me contemplating, and I was writing my last nonfiction book, People Stuff at the time. It made me think like, um, could I also create an impact with fiction? And I thought about all the wonderful fiction books that I've read and I was reading, and I was reading Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series, and how much thinking and uh, provocation those books had on me. And I thought, well, what if I wrote a fiction book that could trigger that kind of thinking in readers as well? So nonfiction has a very particular purpose, and fiction could could also have this other purpose. And science fiction kind of got 
woven into that because the writing I do in my leadership work is all about the future as well. It's how do leaders contend with what's coming and how do they show up to make it all work in a successful way? So that that was the genesis <laughs> of how the threads came together for science fiction. Fascinating. And so my next question is, uh, dystopian, utopian, why did you go down the dystopian pathway uh, or kind of the dystopian pathway for this book? Mm, I, I don't think I made a conscious choice to choose dystopia. I, When I started thinking about the book, I thought about the future and what kinds of things. I just followed a couple of threads of trends and sort of projected to what the world could look like. And I picked the climate uh, climate change and its impact. I thought, if this escalates, what could this mean for the planet? What could it mean for Australia? Australia would get hotter. People would be compressed onto the shores of the ocean, or sorry, the shores of um, the eastern and western coasts of Australia. And there'd be less and less land for people to uh, farm on, less and less land for people to live on. What does that mean? So I followed I followed the kind of um, thought experiments down through the end. And and it does sort of, I think it's easier for people to catastrophize. And I think I fell into that. I catastrophized a little bit with the climate and then hopped on to let's do a positive intent with this. So that's what's happening in our climate. And that's the kind of impact it could have on how people live and work. How might we as leaders, how might we as humans respond to that? How can we devise ways of living and being and eating together that can help us uh, navigate this challenge? And what does this mean for our future? And what does it mean for um, exploration of the cosmos? And do those things actually compete or or can they coexist? So that's sort of how the dystopia came about. So it's dystopian and utopian in some ways as well, because I think humans don't give up on hope. And certainly in the book, there is plenty of hope. There's aspirations to continue to build uh, positive experiences for humanity. And it, there's sort of a lot of the characters really uh, dig into that, that there's there's hope for us as long as we look after each other, as long as we think deeply about the kinds of communities that we're building and the principles that we put into the governance of those communities. So there's a dystopian slash utopian flavor that comes through the novel too. Of course there is. Uh, and he, I like the way that, you know, most of the time in all these science fictions, humans win at the end anyway. We go through we go through <laughs> the, the challenges and everything, but we pull together and we come out at the end. Um, I, I want to ask, can you just give our readers, so those, those people that may not have um, read The Olympus Project and may not even know about The Olympus Project, just give us a brief outline of the plot without giving anything away. Sure. So... It's a time in on the planet where sea rise, uh, the sea has risen, and there's a lot of pressure on humanity to create new kinds of uh, worlds to live on. So it's very hard to live on the main on the mainland because it's too hot. So a whole new industry has emerged called world design, and and there's existing world designers out there at the moment. They don't call themselves that though. And we have floating cities, we have underground cities. And we have we are building communities to help us uh, live uh, in this very difficult climate. The genesis of the of the novel is there's a bid to build the first community on the moon. The Artemis project is always established is already established there as a science base, and they want to expand that into a base for uh, commercial visits, 
for research, for asteroid asteroid mining, et cetera. So the Lunar Commission has put out a tender saying, we want the best designers to pitch for building this particular project. And so the book is about Gaia Enterprises, which is one of the leading world design businesses, putting together a tender initially, getting a crew of people to do the design. And the part of the tender is actually to set up and build the prototype on Earth and prove proof of concept uh, by living in this whole project. So to go from the beginning to the end of the project, as if you'd arrive on the moon, put the whole thing together and live in it for 12 months to prove that it can actually work. And so that is the plot of the book. And so Guy Enterprises has thrown out the call to its own world designers, its own cohort, as well as opened the doors to other engineers, uh, medicos, and uh, uh, other key people for the project to come and uh, be part of this. So there's a competitive element to get onto the crew. And then when the crew is selected, how they actually build and survive the tensions that exist when you live in a confined environment for 12 months together. It's very exciting. Uh, and when we look at science fiction becoming science fact, and we often, we might start a workshop um, with this ourselves and we'll go through, travel through Star Trek and go, look, they were holding an iPad, you know, here's the equivalent. They were holding a mobile yeah. phone, look at teleportation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I love that, love that futurist um, and a lot of respect for Craig Rispin as well. I think he's, he's a remarkable futurist. Um, but very, very interested in, so the, the book is wonderful. Please, if you're listening, read the book. Um, we don't want to give too much away. I, I, I don't like spoilers, so I'm not going to do any here. Uh, how do you relate this? So I, I know it was purposeful around the leadership, around taking us into the future. How do you relate this into your work on leadership? One of the questions I love to work with uh, with leaders is talking about the future. So if we're not prepared for the future, it'll hit us smack in the eyes. <laughs> and so I bring futurist work into the work that I do with leaders. It's like, what are we seeing around us? What are the trends that are affecting us? Let's imagine future scenarios and play with that. And so that's what the Olympus Project does as an example. And the question that I weave into the book is all about what kind of leadership do we need? What kind of leadership maturity do we need? How can we design environments that support the evolution of humanity. And i that's an interesting concept I've been playing with for years, uh, where humans can actually design their own environments, unlike other mammals or creatures um, who basically adapt to their environment. But humans can actually build and create their own environment and therefore cause their own evolution, which I think is an interesting and uh, interesting opportunity for us. So if we can build environments that cause us to think differently about ourselves and each other, can that help us to be better communities, uh, to act more ethically and morally together? So it, it weaves those kinds of questions uh, from the book back into the leadership concepts. And the other question I sort of play with as well in all the work that I do with leaders is remembering that we are still bags of bone and flesh and that we have this uh, archaic biological equipment that we also have to contend with. And a lot of the traps that we fall prey to are because of that biological equipment. We same, we have the same sort of fear triggers. We have these early stages of leadership maturity that we need to contend with in terms of belonging, uh, learning to manage and deal with power as an example, um, petty jealousies, that kind of thing. That still occurs in all of our leadership experiences. And we need to navigate that, even if we are 
setting up communities on the moon. Just because we have communities on the moon doesn't mean that we've left all of our early tribal and uh, um, instincts behind. They are still with us and we still need to be paying attention to that and learning how to manage that. They are still part of who we are very much so. Do you have any any leaders that you've based the characters on or, or you know, what would be the main attributes of these leaders? I know you've mentioned some anyway, um, you know, going back to the ethics and going back to our roots, et cetera. But what would be, is there, are, are your characters based on inspirational leaders, elements of inspirational leaders um, throughout your life? I'd say there's, they're composites. Uh, when I was working on what kind of characters I wanted in this book, I would think about people in my life, either for a physical attribute or a characteristic, and then sort of wove that into the writing. And then the characters develop their own personas, if you like. So that was from a fiction design, that was an element of it. In terms of inspirational aspects of the characters, not all of them are inspiring <laughs> to say. <laughs> um, and at the same time, there are people in my life who have demonstrated fantastic leadership. And the dedication of the book is to Leith Bully. And she is one of the leaders I deeply and greatly admire. She's a leader in uh, agriculture and uh, water management uh, and has been involved in developing leaders around Australia for 20 or 30 years. And so she's, she's named uh, in the book as the dedication. Um, so there's definitely some fabulous leaders around there that I've worked with and know of that have inspired some of the aspects of the characters, but there's no one particular character like this character is this person in real life. No, uh, not at all. They, they are they are fictional, made up people. <laughs> Do you have that qualification? Like that, that little uh, these these people are not based on any. And I should have qualified the question in the first place when I said. Uh, aspiration because definitely there are some people there that you uh, would not want as leaders in your area. A few years ago, I read a, or quite some years ago now, I read a, a book called The Celestine Prophecy and it was all about future, you know, the spiritual development, et cetera, leading into the future. And there was a workbook that came out with it later. Are you planning a workbook um, using the qualities of science fiction, using the attributes of science fiction based on the attributes um, that you've mentioned in the Olympus Project? As a as a working piece, uh, are you going to leave it strictly as a fiction, or are you not saying right now? Uh, I hadn't have I don't have plans to create a workbook based on the Olympus Project. I do have plans to talk about the Olympus Project in terms of encouraging people to talk about the future and its opportunities as well as its threats, um, and to and to discuss those. You know the the ideas of what's how we're going to produce and manage feeding ourselves in the future. How we're going to manage and um, living together in a in difficult climate situation. What does this mean for humanity? And how are we going to address this whole space exploration thing? Because it's happening. So it's more taking those themes and those bigger picture ideas um, and themes out of the book and saying, let's have real discussions about this in terms of how this will impact you, your your business, your uh, enterprise, your communities. And decide what kind of future we actually want to create, not just react to. So that's sort of how the book is going to be um, moved with, I guess, or used in my own leadership practice. Yeah, I love that. I think there's actually, a, there is a work, workshop book in that if you ever want to go down that path. Um, <laughs> so so a, a question around, so we look around us at what's happening right now in the world, and it's very easy to see us he heading into a dystopian space. Um how hopeful are you for this future? 
how hopeful are you that in 20 to 30 years' time you'll be walking along that beach, you'll have that physical piece of paper um, in your hand, or 20 years' time, sorry, uh, and, and that the world will have corrected and that humans will have corrected. The world will correct itself regardless of whether we're here or not. Um, but but how, do you, how do you see things playing out? Are you hopeful? I am hopeful in a number of different ways, yes. Um, I'm pretty sure we're going to end up on the moon uh, because there's already plans in motion. So that's that's more of a certainty and it's just a question of when. I hope I live long enough to see people on Mars. Uh, I really hope to see that come to fruition and to see space exploration happen. Um, in terms of the climate crisis, that's touch and go. There's so much volatility with that. I'm uncertain how that will play out. I'm hopeful that humans will rise to the occasion. And I think there's so many challenges challenges for us right now as a, hum, as a human species. Um, the rise of autocrats and the war in the Ukraine are examples of things not going so well and that we need to be get off our complacent laurels when it comes to preserving democracy and reinventing democracy to ensure that it can actually um, go against the tide of, of this autocracy. And the autocracy is rising because of polarization. There's lots of things that we need to fix in this um, in our current situation in society. I believe that we can actually get there. I think all the tools at our disposal, which are also being used for manipulation by said autocrats and others can also be used for education. And I think there's enough committed, dedicated leaders out there who want to see um, pro-social outcomes of our leadership decisions as opposed to uh, pro-power keeping <laughs> decisions. So I am hopeful. Um, I think that I think that there is a positive future for all of us. And I think probably the book is a is a catch cry, not a catch cry, is a calling card for leaders to say we have a part to play and we can't stand idly by letting things happen. We need to actually articulate our principles, our values, and we need to make conscious decisions about how we lead our personal lives and our public lives and our leadership lives so that we are actually moving humanity forward. We are moving the planet forward into a healthy place. And I think the more of us that take on that mantle, then the rising tide, <laughs> um, not the climate change rising tide, but the rising tide of proactive, positive focus will help. Uh, one of the greatest books I've read recently, which gave me great hope for this as a practical strategies to address some of these issues is Donut Economics. And I was really impressed by that book because it. a lot of people talk about for example, uh, universal basic income, and don't give practical ways to go about doing that. This book is a practical solution to a lot of the challenges that we've got. And in it, she contends that we can do both things. We need to have a change our economic policies and visions and values so that we have human flourishing as well as human flourishing, that we act within the bounds of our resources on this planet. And I think if more uh, leaders take on that practice or that focus, and challenge some of our defaults, which is more, and and what is an, and ask the question, what is enough? Then we have a pathway to change how we run our societies, how we run our economies, how we run our businesses, so that we live within our means, within the boundaries of the of the planetary resources that we've got. So that was a very long answer to the simple question. Yes, I am hopeful. <laughs> 
I, I'm not sure it was a simple question, and I think you answered it very well. And, and I, do, I do believe at times the divide becomes wider to bring us together. Uh, so I'm also very hopeful that, that that's the space that we might be in at the moment, that we'll, once we realise how dangerous polarisation or total polarisation is, um, that it will bring us together and that it is okay for us to disagree uh, peacefully and with respect. So they're, they're my utopian, that's my utopian vision for the future. Um, and I also, I also believe, I, I love what you said about donut economics. Uh, and I, I think if anything, the last few years and the COVID pandemic and, and all the things that we've been through have shown us that we are capable of moving quickly and changing things quickly. Uh, and we're almost in that in that little curve of hesitancy at the moment, where we've we've maybe lost the, the panic around the pandemic, or you know, in some places, other panics are, are rising, as you've mentioned, uh, and and maybe the there's this um, retreat into slow, steady decision making. And I think we do need to take some of those um, some of those lessons. What do you think about? So last week, the the US announced that it was hopeful um, to put a limit on space junk and to make people aware because we don't want to end up polluting space the way that we have um, damaged the planet. Uh, what are your thoughts around universal agreements um, on, you know, on space junk and, and what we are actually doing out uh, in, in space and also, you know, some of the, the harm that may happen. I mean, we've mined Earth and we've, we've realised some of the damage that we've done there when, when we're not careful to repair. What do you think about the consequences of, of carrying on those behaviours on the moon, on Mars, in other places? I think that's a good move by the US. And I think we do need these universal agreements about how we're going to deal with our celestial assets and our celestial bodies. The moon is a cultural, meaningful icon for all humanity and we don't want to ruin it if you like and you know in in the olympus project i have the lunar commission in there and sort of projecting that we do need a universal entity to help us govern these assets off planet and have agreements about how those are going to work i think it's a disturbing um move by the russians to pull out of the international space station because that has been a bastion of hope in terms of international cooperation in spite of the political differences and i think this is something that we need to work actively quickly to reverse and it's um also challenging that um we have different nations setting up their own space stations as well because this will just <laughs> set us off on different paths instead of international collaboration, then we'll have the rise of nationalism again in space. So I think we absolutely have to be focused on how we're going to work collectively off planet. Uh, the challenge is we haven't managed to work work collaboratively on planet just yet. And I think we are definitely at a tipping point at the moment to how we are responding to the international challenges that we're facing that Russia is definitely flagging for us. And if we don't handle this well, things are going to go badly for us. And I think we're we're not handling it right. We have, well, we haven't resolved it yet, have we? And so, <clears throat> I think we need to move quickly to handle these kinds of challenges to uh, to basic human decency um, and take whatever lessons we can from building international relationships from this and apply them very quickly to how we're managing working together in space. So, yeah, um, it's big, 
big work and always it comes together in the differences of human values, human philosophies, political values, political philosophies, and the danger of how we wield power, which is another central three theme in the novel. Like individuals, power is very addictive and it doesn't disappear on the global stage. In fact, it gets amplified. And I think we need to keep uh, speaking truth to power and speak and keep looking at how we actually wield power as individuals, as well as communities and governments. It's a really big issue that uh, we don't talk enough about, I don't think. Zoe, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing your thoughts, not only on the Olympus Project, uh, and very exciting book. Please find it, read it. Um, I'm actually looking forward to reading part two and part three and seeing where <laughs> we actually go, uh, what the next step is. Have, have you got any plans for, for what's coming next? Oh, Will you in write terms- part two or part three? Absolutely. Yes, of the book. At the moment, I'm writing the prequel about Terra Blanca, which wow. uh, which gets mentioned quite a lot in the novel, which yeah. is yeah. one of the initial communities that uh, Guy Enterprises uh, designs and sets up and has tragic outcomes. So I'm writing that book. It's going to be a shorter book. It'll be a bit more of a novella. And then the sequel to this book, I have also started writing called, it'll be called Olympus Bound. And it'll be they're actually on the moon and what happens there. So it's exciting. <laughs> Very exciting. Uh, and I look forward to walking the beach with you in 20 years. Um, and maybe we'll do that on a, on a Newcastle beach somewhere and comparing notes for those, those pieces of paper that we're holding in our hands. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. All the best with the book. We'll put the notes and everything. Please read it. It's a great read. Uh, it's a great read just from a science fiction perspective, as well as um, all the, the thought provoking themes that you've that you've put through it um thanks for joining us and i would love to catch up with you again in about six months time or three months time (laughs) thank you christina it's been delightful i really appreciate it thanks everyone for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast um and please get your hands on that book uh, and have a read and then part and, and and encourage other people to read the book as well if you've enjoyed the podcast please share it with your friends family we look forward to seeing you on our next episode of inspired for impact 